Thanks, Jeff. Morning, everybody. Just want to start this morning. We are last Sunday in July. Can't believe how quick it's going. Um, just happens to be uh, one of my sister-in-law's birthdays today. So happy birthday, Amanda. I won't give away your age, but it's a special one. And if you were playing cricket, you'd probably raise your bat. Um, so, and no, she's not 100. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and so, look, uh, and just thinking about um, people who I know are engaging with us. Jeff mentioned this at the beginning. I, I know we've got people with us this morning from Newcastle and from the Hunter Valley, uh, from Toowoomba, from the Gold Coast, uh, from far north Queensland, um, maybe even the Northern Territory. We've got some people tuning in. Um, I know we have some people tuning in from Texas over in the States and even Bangladesh, we found out this week, we've got some people tuning in from Bangladesh. So literally the church, because we're doing it online, because we're doing it like this, we, we can reach a global audience and it's not just us, it's, it's the church being online and, and it's so great that we can do that in this season. So today I want to continue in our series as we work through John. We're still in John chapter 1. Um, last week we, we saw um, John the Baptist being introduced. We saw Jesus being um, declared as not only um, Jesus, the, the, the person we know, but the God of all creation. And so we're going to continue today. So can I encourage you um, where you are, grab out your phone that's got a Bible app, grab a Bible, grab something where you can follow along. There's a bit of scripture to get through this morning and we can do that together. So we're going to kick off with reading some of that. So we're in John chapter 1 and today we're starting from verse 19 and we'll work our way through the rest of chapter 1 this morning. So here we go, John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Let's look at what it's saying to us. So now this was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So this is John the Baptist we're talking about here. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet. He said, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So there's a bit in that, and just to unpack a little bit of that, the place where John was doing this baptizing is traditionally the place where the prophet Elijah was taken up from heaven, taken up into heaven. And so that's why the question about, are you Elijah? Are you that prophet who has come back? Because this is, this is the place that's significant for Elijah. 
There was also um, scriptures back in Exodus where Moses was writing that a prophet would come that would be greater than him. So the, the Jewish nation had been waiting for this prophet to arrive. And so this is what's in the mind of the people who are asking John these questions. Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he kept saying, no, I'm not. He said, but I'm pointing the way towards the one you need to start paying attention to, meaning Jesus. And so as we unpacked a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at a bit of an overview of John, there are in chapter one, there are seven different uh, names given to Jesus. And I'll just show you what these are, just so you can remember. And so we've got the Lamb of God and the Son of God and the King of Israel and Jesus of Nazareth and the Messiah or the Christ and a rabbi and the Son of Man. And so today, I just feel like we need to stop in one of those titles to bring some revelation about who Jesus truly is. And that's the first one on the list, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And so as we continue in the passage, we're now at verse 29. Let's look at what John the Baptist actually says. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is, because, this, this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So there's a bit in that. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I love that sentence because John the Baptist is recognizing that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one is God because that sentence, a man who comes after me, has surpassed me because he was before me. Love that sentence. But we need to ask ourselves, what would the people who were hearing John say this, what would those people have understood when John declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God? What would have been going on in their thinking when that statement was made? See, I think we can have this picture of a lamb in our context that is something pretty small and pretty cute, a bit like this picture here, the little one with the green grass around it. Um, but it's probably in their thinking more like the other one in the picture, uh, a lamb that's probably about a year old that has some strength about it, has some size about it, even has some horns growing. Um, that's the type of picture that the people would have thought of. They also would have thought that this lamb, this young sheep that's got a bit of strength, a bit of size about it, would be killed violently. Because we're talking about a bunch of people who live in a particular context where the sacrifice of lambs was absolute common practice. It would not have been out of the question for the hearers of John declaring Jesus is the Lamb of God to think that that means this Jesus guy is going to die soon and die a pretty violent death. John is indicating by making this statement, Jesus is the Lamb of God, that things is indicating how things are going to end, that Jesus will die. 
he will be a sacrifice. And what the people at that stage didn't quite understand is, is why, what for, what was going on here? The Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. Now, when we look at the big picture of Scripture and we look at the character and the nature of God, God is one who gives generously. He's not known to be one who takes. He's one who gives. So in this picture, we've got Jesus declared to be the one who takes away the sins of the world so that he can give what is most needed, what is most beneficial, what is truly life. Remember, that's one of the main themes that we go through in John's gospel, the theme of life. So if the sins are going to be taken away, not just forgiven, but taken away, Jesus wants to replace them with something. He wants to replace something, impart something into each of us when those sins are removed. And John goes on to declare that the thing that Jesus wants to give us, the thing that Jesus wants to gift us with, fill us with, is actually the very nature of himself. It's his own spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this continues in our passage. So we're up to verse 32 here. Let's read together. It says, Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. See, Jesus didn't come simply to take away all that's wrong in your life, although that is what he has done. But he's also come to fill you with all that is good and right. It's, his, it's, it's him himself. It's his spirit, the very nature and character of who he is. So what we're talking about here, this, this idea of God imparting his own spirit into human beings to help create them and mould them to be the type of people that he's always visioned us to be, the type of people who can be about the mission that he's on in this world, the type of people who can be good stewards of his creation that he created for us. This is what we're talking about and this is what the Bible refers to as, as the new covenant. It's the new covenant It's the new agreement, it's the new promise, it's the new contract, it's the new deal that God has with humankind. See, when we go through the Bible story, God had covenants. So this idea of God saying, I will do this, this, this and this in the relationship and you as people, you will do this, this, this and this in the relationship and when we're both doing our equal parts, things will be well. And this is the story we see right through what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And in that place, there was covenants made with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David. And there's been this promise in the writings of the prophets, particularly, that a new covenant will come. There'll be a new way for God to be interacting with humankind. And so Jesus inaugurates that and we will see the completion or the consummation of that when, when, when Jesus returns and all things are restored and renewed. But this, this new covenant has been in, in operation in the world for about 2,000 years since the time of Jesus. 
And this is what we're, we're sitting in. So what is the new covenant? Well, the new covenant is pretty much what we just described there. But let's go to scripture to, to, to see it. So in Hebrews, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And I'm going to read a little portion of this. And then the last part I will share with you. So in Hebrews chapter 8, starting in verse 7, we read this. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. And here's the new covenant. It says, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So here's scripture describing for us the very thing that John is unpacking in the first chapter of his gospel. That Jesus has come to take away the sins of the world and replace it with his very spirit. And when his spirit indwells a human being, his spirit puts God's laws, God's character, God's nature into our hearts and our minds so we start to become the people of God. We start to become God's representatives in the world, which is what the original creation story was pointing to. See, even Jesus says something about this. So in the gospel recorded by Luke... When Luke was writing the details of what we know as the Last Supper, the time when Jesus was with his 12 disciples just before he was arrested and then crucified, they were together celebrating the feast of the Passover. Now, the feast of the Passover was a celebration that the Jewish people would remember every single year to remember how God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. This is where Moses comes into our scripture story. So the, the nation is enslaved 400 years. Moses turns up. God does some miracles and the people are released and freed out of that bondage and slavery. And what we read in that story is that there's a bunch of plagues that happen. And the last plague is that the angel of death would come uh, across that whole nation of Egypt and the firstborn of every family would die when this angel of death passed over. And so what they were instructed to do was to take a lamb and they would sacrifice this lamb and when this lamb was sacrificed, the blood would be taken. The blood would be put across the door frame of the house. So when the angel of death moved over, if the blood of the lamb was present, then death did not occur. And this is what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating. And this is where Jesus draws that image and that reality to, him very, to his very self. And so we read in Luke's gospel... This passage says in the same way, this is Jesus in the, in the Last Supper, in the same way after the supper he took the cup 
saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. This is what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. This is what John the Baptist was declaring. This is a revelation of who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh doing what only God can do to actually realize that human beings cannot keep these covenants that God had made through the centuries. And so God says, I'm going to move in and I'm going to enable you to be the very people I've always desired you to be because I'm going to give you my very self. I'm going to give you my spirit. It's a beautiful passage. So let's continue. That, that, that's, that's one image that comes out of today's um, passages, the Lamb of God. So let, let's continue reading. So we're up to verse 35 now. So the following day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. He says it again. And when John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following what do you want? He asked them. And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. And looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the, the gears have changed a little bit here. We've gone from this, this revelation of Jesus being the Lamb of God into the call for the first disciples to start following. And you'll notice a couple of things in the passages we just read. Two disciples followed. One is identified as Andrew. The other is not identified. Most scholars would think it is actually John, the one writing this account, where John does not mention his own name. And the fact that he even remembers that it was four o'clock in the afternoon when this happened probably indicates that John was the one who was there. But the interesting thing in this passage is the renaming of Simon. So Jesus renamed him. The name Simon in those days meant uh, like a reed, like a, a thin plant in the water, a reed that's easily blown around and weak and easily shaken and unreliable. And so Jesus looks at Simon and says, you know, you're not going to live up to your name. In fact, I'm going to give you a new name. I'm going to give you a name that means rock, someone that is solid. And actually, when we read Peter's story through the Gospels, into the book of Acts, into the letters that Peter writes, we see him become a man who is absolutely solid in his following of Jesus, but also helping others understand that and the church being birthed. So essentially Jesus is looking at Simon and saying, you're unreliable, but with me as part of your life, you're going to become a rock. And so I love this, that Jesus actually renamed Simon to bring revelation of what he would become when he devoted his life to following Jesus. 
So our story continues. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, come, follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. And Philip went to look for Nathanael, who told him, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied. So this character Nathanael, only mentioned in John's gospel, the other gospels um, give his name as Bartholomew. So again, most scholars would agree that same character, Nathanael in John's gospel is the same disciple called Bartholomew in the other gospels. And he was a devout Jewish man. We can pick that up in this little interaction. He knew the scriptures well. Remember, at this point, the, the prophets had been silent for about 400 years. The Jewish people are, are waiting. What's happening next? When's God going to show up? When's God going to tell us what's happening? When's the Messiah coming? So there's this, this, these antennas up to go, I've got... I'm tuned into what could be happening here. And whenever there's talk about a Messiah, somebody like Nathaniel would have been presenting who this person is against the scriptures. And what we know is that Nazareth is actually not mentioned in the Old Testament. So when Jesus of Nazareth is presented, Nathaniel is thinking, hang on, that doesn't line up. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What are you talking about? And so when we get that picture, Philip's invitation to Nathaniel to say, well, we'll just come and see. It's probably the best thing Philip could have said at that time. So I want to finish just with looking at how Andrew and Philip responded to their discovery of who Jesus is and that response to the invitation of Jesus to come and follow. We can see on this slide, and we've just read these passages. So with Andrew was one of the men who heard that John had said, follow Jesus. And Andrew went to find his brother and told him, we've found the Messiah. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. And with Philip, Jesus said to him, come follow me. And Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, this is the guy we've been talking about. Come and see for yourself. And so today I think that there's great revelation for us in this passage about who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God. He's come to take away our sins, but not just to take, a, take them away and leave a vacuum, but to replace that aspect, to, re, to, to fill us with himself. Great revelation of who Jesus is. But here's a real practical application for us, I reckon, out of this passage. Both Andrew and Philip have modelled the very thing that we are called to do when we meet Jesus, to go and find others and tell others about it. We do that with nearly every aspect of our life. If we go on a good holiday, we want to tell others about it. If we find a good new coffee, we want to tell others about it. If we see a movie that's great or read a book that's great, we want to tell others about it. And this is just a natural progression of that. If we find God himself 
inviting us into life with Him, to give us life that we actually all desire. Life that has purpose and meaning and fulfilment and peace and joy and life that's actually eternal and not temporal. It makes sense that we would want to share that with others. Responding to the invitation of Jesus to follow me equips us to be found people. And when we are found people, we give our lives to helping others become found. You know, in the words of one of the most famous hymns that we all know, Amazing Grace, there's that line, I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. When we are found people, I think the thing that most ignites in us is that we want others to experience what we've experienced. We want others to be found just as we are found. And just like Andrew with Simon and Philip with Nathaniel, we will discover that if we will talk about Jesus, there will be people around us who are just waiting to hear, who want to come and see. And they'll be able to discover that Jesus is who he says he is. He is who the scriptures to declare him to be. He is who John is describing to us in this very passage. And there's an open invitation to every one of us that we too can be found. This is God's mission in his world. We read about it in little stories like the, the one lost sheep that the shepherd goes to find the one that's lost. And the lady with the lost coin and the, the father with the lost son. We, we get these pictures of God just saying, I want you to come back into relationship with me. I want you to be found. This is God's mission in his world. It's the result of being disciples who make disciples. This is the life that is set apart for us as we become found, empowered by that indwelling Holy Spirit, the very presence of God himself. This is the church in action. This is good news. So as we wrap up chapter 1 of John today, and we've got 20 chapters to go, it's amazing. There is so much in this for us. And I've only unpacked one of those titles of Jesus. There's six others that have so much texture and richness and depth to them as well. Can I encourage you to look into that, explore that? It would take us forever if we were to stop at every single one of these and unpack them week after week. But I just trust that there's been something today that's resonated, that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And that by his sacrifice, by his blood being shed, our sins have been taken away. Scripture says God removes them as far as the east is from the west, completely removes them for us. And he says he chooses to remember them no longer. That's our reality. And then he imparts into us his very own spirit. So his spirit can work on our, our minds and our hearts. So we become the type of people who are about what God's about helping find those who are lost, 
helping them bring them into a relationship with Jesus. It's actually worth giving your life to. Let me pray for us as we finish. So Jesus, I thank you that you bring revelation to us through your word and through your spirit. I thank you that your love for us refuses to leave us where we are in that state of lostness, despair, hopelessness. And I pray that when we accept that invitation to follow you, we find ourselves in a position where we are found and we are loved and we are invited into your family and we are declared to be your children and we will inherit all of your creation with Jesus. So I thank you that that's your vision for us. That's what you desire for us. That's what you've invited us into. And I pray that as that sinks into our heart as a reality, we would be people who would invite others into that and show that to others so that your name may be glorified in all the world. We ask that in your mighty name. Amen.